How do you create a marketplace without a lot of money? Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm your host, Greg Gallant, and today my guest is Barry Selbert. Barry founded Second Market in 2004 with the mission of creating a marketplace to buy and sell illiquid assets. That means anything from restricted stock to interest in a venture capital firm to what will be near and dear to your hearts, interest in private companies. So you can buy a stock, sell a stock without having to be publicly listed. Creating a marketplace like this sounds like a daunting task, one that would require millions of dollars from the get-go. Barry managed to bootstrap it all and get to profitability on only $350,000 in angel investment. Throughout his journey, his business partner, Brad Monks, had cancer and died in 2007. There were no shortages of challenges to build this company, but nevertheless, Barry grew it to the point that in 2008, he had $20 million in revenue. He currently has 125 employees in downtown Manhattan. I'll also note that Barry is the first fellow Emory University graduate I've had on the show, which gives me a little more faith that the four years I spent in school were well worth it. Hope you enjoy the show. Barry, welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me. So thanks for coming on. Uh, tell me tell me about how you got your first kind of entrepreneurial inklings and then how you, how you got started with your career. You know, I think I've always been uh, a bit of, a, of an entrepreneur. Even when I was very young, I was doing the newspaper routes and uh, doing the you know, baseball card, uh, selling and buying at shows. And um, yeah, I think kind of growing up, I always thought eventually I'd go into business uh, for myself. Um, you know, it took being out of college for about five or six years before finally, before finally getting there, but uh, always, been, always been a bit of an entrepreneur. And then you graduate college. What do you do next? So um, I decided uh, when I was in school, uh, I went to Emory down in Atlanta, and I, I had worked during college at Bear Stearns and Smith Barney, and so got, um, got a bit of a background in, in the investment banking world and the trading world, and I decided to, to go into investment banking. And so I worked at Houlihan Loki here in New York, um, where I was started off as a generalist, which means you work on things like M and A and restructuring and financing deals, and uh, was was lucky enough to end up at at Houlihan during the beginning of of a big bankruptcy boom. So this was 1998 uh, through 2004 while I was there. So while at Houlihan, I got to work on some really cool deals like Enron and U.S. Airways, and did a bunch of deals internationally in Asia and South America. And it was it was there that I, I first really kind of came up with the idea or, or saw the need for what Second Market is today, which is a uh, just a, a large marketplace for buying and selling various types of illiquid assets. Now that sounds like a pretty depressing job. You describe it as a boom, but you know these are bankruptcies. But what was that like to be in the middle of it? It was really exciting because you know as a 21, 22 year old to be working on. Um, deals that were, you know, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. You know, it was always really exciting. And when I was working on the Enron deal, got to fly around, fly around in the Enron jet and uh, sit in Ken Lay's seat, which was which was pretty cool. Um, but you know, I think as an investment banker, you work a lot of hours and you get really good experience, good exposure. So uh, you know, while while things were, um, you know, um, you know, during the boom and the bust, 
yeah, yeah, I guess you know, depressing at, at times. It was really exciting, um, and it was it was like I said, a really really cool experience. So I know a lot of bankers who who have entrepreneurial aspirations, but most of them never act on it because they just make a lot of money. They get used to making, you know, well into the six figures, and there's no way you get that first couple of years of being an entrepreneur. What, what was going through your mind, you know, when you're making this good money, living a good lifestyle, why, why give it all up for, uh, for an uncertain future? Well, I can tell you that my wife, who at the time was my girlfriend, and my family thought I was crazy. Uh, I, I'd actually never really told them how much money I made until I had left. Um, but they also knew that I really was an entrepreneur, entrepreneur at heart. And it was, it was really good timing because this was in, in 2004 when I left Houlihan Loki. Um, so the, you know, the bankruptcy boom had ended. Um, I had, you know, what I thought was a really good idea and no kids, no mortgage. And, um, you know, I figured I could always go back and be an investment banker and uh, might as well kind of, kind of roll the dice and see if I could get it done. Was there a certain moment, though? Was there was there an event that happened in your life that made you think it was time to go off on your own, or I, I think just... it, I think it was really kind of a combination of um, you know just having had enough experience uh, in the working world. I guess I had been at Hulahan Loki for about five years, and um, I had enough money in the bank where I knew that I could you know get a, a, give a good year or two um, towards the business idea before I had to, uh, to kind of go back and, and work for the man again. And, uh, fortunately it worked out and well, I guess I'm now the man, but, um, it, it, it really was, you know, a bit of luck, but also a bit of good timing. So this is 04. And did you start thinking you just wanted to start a company or did you start off with an idea? Which, which one came first? Well, when I was uh, thinking about leaving investment banking and the different ideas, um, that were coming to me. I, I, I spent about six months, uh, this was the second half of 2003, just coming up with different business ideas, um, things that were you know, specifically related to investment banking or the financial uh, markets and others that were completely random. Um, and I kept on coming back to this idea, this, this need for this marketplace. Um, you know, I, worked, I was working on the Enron deal and we were responsible um, as advisors to all the creditors to help um, basically kind of break apart Enron and solve the pieces. And and I kept on you know hitting this this issue where I had not much of a Rolodex. Um, there was no centralized place to go to uh, to sell these assets. And um, so I, I ended up saying, you know what, th th there's a real need for this. And I, so I narrowed down the list. And then um, early part of 2004 um, left to uh, to start the business. And so the idea was simply just a, at the time, the idea was just a marketplace for these private securities? Yeah, there were, there were about five or six different types of assets that I kept on coming back to. Um, private company stock was one of them, uh, something called bankruptcy claims, which is when a, when a company files for bankruptcy, they owe a lot of money to different people. And you can actually sell that claim, and so that was one of the ideas. Um, and then different types of, of restricted stock in public companies. And so the original idea, um, in fact, we started off uh, under a different name called it was Restricted Stock Partners, was to uh, create a network of um, buyers and sellers of, of those few asset classes, knowing that if we figured out you know, kind of how to do this, we'd be able to apply this model to lots of different asset classes. 
Now, typically, a lot of banks will go and start and make markets like this. Did you, did you think of yourself as going off to start your own bank, or did you think of it as a tech startup or you know, or a consulting company? What was your thought around that? Well, there are a number of different ways, I, I guess, to create marketplaces. And um, I was going down the path originally, um, w w I guess kind of the common path, which is you raise a bunch of money, you build a whiz-bang technology platform, um, and turn it on and hope people show up. And I got really, really good advice early on uh, from the uh, from the CEO of Houlihan Loki, actually, who said, "Don't waste your time trying to raise money. Don't waste your time trying to build a system. Instead, just start doing these transactions. You, you know, you don't need um, a platform to create a market. All you really need are." some phones and an Excel spreadsheet. And that's really what we did. When we, when we, when we launched, it was five of us and five phones, uh, you know, jammed into a tiny, tiny office with an Excel spreadsheet, um, you know, taking meetings in the, in the COSI or the Starbucks coffee shop. Um, but, but by starting that way, um, without having spent a lot of time trying to raise money or building a system, when we launched, we were getting transactions done, which was, which was, you know, I guess, you know, surprising to us uh, how, how easy it came, but we were also profitable. And so we were able to, you know, really from the outset, kind of grow our business, um, focus on growing our business and not focus on trying to raise money. So walk me through the practical steps that you went through to actually leave your job. Like, did you write the business plan and then leave your job? Did you ever write a business plan? Did you start, you know, filing the corporate papers before or after you left? How exactly did that transition occur? So I left Tulahan Loki in January 2004, and I spent about um, about six months uh, meeting with folks in the industry, um, writing a business plan. Um, my first partner joined me um, at that point. Um, uh, his name was Brad Monks. Uh, he was a lawyer who I knew from uh, my days in banking. He was working at a law firm. And so at the end of, of 2000, uh, 2004, we um, you know, finished raising a tiny little round of, of angel money, um, which uh, probably about five or six investors. And How um, much did you raise with that first round? We raised about $350,000. And Is so, that including the money that you guys put in, if any? Yeah, we, um, I think you know, each of us put in, um, I think in total we put in about $50,000, and then we spent you know, called, you know, nine months of, of you know, sweat equity. And then um, you know, I believe for the first year we didn't even take a salary um, after that. Um, but you know, with that small amount of money, uh, like I said, when we when we launched, um, we were we were cash flow positive, which which was great. And so, tell me about the very first security that you sold. So it, we when we when we kind of opened for business, uh, you know, we put out a press release saying you know restricted stock partners launches. We called it our, our marketplace. We called it at the time was called the Restricted Securities Trading Network or the RSTN, which was such a mouthful. And like from day one, we were trying to come up with a better name, um, and we called it RSTN for short. And you know, we figured, hey, you know, it'll be the next Nasdaq. But um, when we launched, it was great because we got some some great publicity in the New York Times. And um, so, so some of the first transactions we were getting done uh, were really just in some 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 blocks of restricted stock um, in various public companies. I remember one of the one of the most active stocks we were trading was a company called Pacific Ethanol, uh, which was um, you know this was the kind of the boom time of ethanol businesses, uh, and uh, they had done a bunch of, of private placements and had a bunch of restricted stock out there, and um, the, the stock was just on fire. It went you know from two to five to ten to twenty to forty. And the people who held the stock, they were restricted. They couldn't get out of it except for through us. So we helped a bunch of people sell their stock at, at $10, $12, $15. Like I said, it ultimately went to $40. Um, today, 
Pacific Ethanol, I believe, is bankrupt. Um, mm. The company was a high flyer uh, in the uh, in, in the ethanol boom, and the folks who were able to kind of get out were able to get out, uh, you know, at a, at a at a good price before it fell apart. So when you say they couldn't get out uh, except through you, you mean because there was no no one else there to find a buyer? Yeah, the way that restricted stock works is you have to hold on to the stock for a certain amount of time, something, sometimes either 6 or 12 months. And However, you can sell it in a private transaction. So you and I can transact all day long, but if you were the seller, you couldn't just go to sell it on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. And so we were able to create this, this, this private network of buyers um, to, to trade in stocks like that. So, like, when that first person from uh, from that company calls you and they say, hey, I have this restricted stock, I want to sell, I hang up the phone, what do you do next? So, at the time, um, we would log it into our Excel, our Excel spreadsheet. Um, things have certainly changed since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, it was um, looking at our list of buyers that we had um, accumulated. And at that point, we probably had maybe 150 or 200 buyers folks like hedge funds and high net worth individuals who, um, you know, again, at the time we would send out an, an email list of things available for sale. We'd call them and we would help negotiate a transaction between the seller and buyer while each side was was anonymous. So they'd never talk to each other until after the deal was closed? Right. Or? Once the price was agreed to, um, we, um, in order to do these transactions, you have to, there's a lot of paperwork, legal legal work involved. So so once the terms were agreed to, we would then reveal identities and help them um, exchange money in the stock. And so tell me, like, what were the legal fees on that first deal? You know, since Brad um, was, uh, you know, an attorney and he had lots of experience in securities law, um, we didn't incur any outside costs. And, and I don't know if the buyers and sellers did, but, you know, over the, the course of a few years, we were able to really create um, the standard way of doing these. We created standardized documents. We got to know all the lawyers, all the transfer agents, and we were able to shorten, you know, what was typically like a 30 or 45-day um, time frame to settle these transactions down to, you know, today we're doing it in, in a week or less. And, and so, like, how many pages is this? Like, what, what do these docs look like to actually oh, get done? It, it, they were painful they, because there were a couple documents involved, probably a total of 30 or 40 pages. And, you know, when we first started, um, you know, I think we had a form document. And, and I remember, you know, sending out the first ones for comment, and they'd come back with, you know, more, more red lines and more, more changes than there was actual, actual content that was left behind. Um, but, you know, again, uh, we've done a you know, few thousand transactions now. And, um, you know, that's how you get to, you know, these new standard processes by just doing a bunch of transactions. Now, was there a moment early on when when this was all kind of sweat to get these deals done where you just said, you know, oh, man, I, I gave up being a banker to become a, a broker, you know, when, when it was all manual and there was no evidence that this could scale? I, I think what we realized early on was that um, the technology that we needed to build early on was less so for the outside world to use, and it was really more for us to use internally. Because as we were signing up new buyers, you know, went from 150 to 250 to 500 to 1,000, it just became really, really difficult to to manage all the different buyers, to know, you know, what they wanted to buy and, and you know, what their preferences were. And then on the other side, there was just a lot of sellers, and there were a lot of different things put up for sale that we had to somehow track. So, you know, we started off, you know, our first investment in technology was, you know, just just different database, you know, tools. And then the next 
technology investment after that was really just kind of internal CRM type, um, you know, technology as well as, um, you know, just, just, you know, enhanced database tools. So you could have been using, we're you using like Salesforce or something we're off the using, shelf? Or? Well, whatever we could find for free or borrow <laughs> or steal, we were pretty much using. But, um, but, but you know, ultimately, um, you know, it just got to the point where we had to, you know, kind of take take that aspect of the business seriously and start, you know, really, really building a, a robust system. Now tell me about the team that you assembled. It was you, Brad, you know, who else came on and when? So the uh, the first five folks, um, it was so it was myself, it was Brad. We hired um, uh, um, a guy named Phil Reichertz from uh, UBS uh, who had lots of experience in restricted stock. Uh, we hired a um, uh, guy, J.P. Teutonico uh, from Goldman Sachs, um, who headed up our operations. And then we uh, our number five employee uh, was Adam Oliveri, who we hired right out of college. So he was... Uh, he was the, the the grunt of the group, um, and now today he's a very senior part of the of the management team. Hmm. And so, so tell me about how it started to scale. So you go through '04, you're starting to make some cash. You did this $350,000 angel raise. Where where did it go from there? So 2005, 2006 was spent really just kind of doing you know, what we were doing, which was you know building this big network of buyers and sellers and um, getting transactions done. And we started building our first platform, our first trading platform, uh, in, in 2006 and spent about, about, about 12, 12, 14 months building the first system. And um, we, with that system, we actually outsourced uh, most of the developments to a company uh, called Restricted Stock Systems, a New Jersey-based company um, who had experience with, you know, with restricted stock and things like that. And um, in, in early 2007, we went live with the system um, and, and it was at that time that we were approached by our first venture capital partner. Great. So tell me up until then, how did the revenue ramp between 05, 06, 07? In 2005, we did about a million dollars in revenue. In 2006, we did about two and a half million. And then um, in 2007, um, we, we did about five and a half million in revenue. And then with that revenue, that's all. How did that work? Was it a set fee off the uh, off what was traded? We, yeah, we were trying different revenue models early on. Um, it, we, we decided from the get-go that we were never, ever going to charge for access to the actual trading platform because the key is to get as many buyers and sellers as possible into one central location. There's something, there's a saying, you know, liquidity begets liquidity. So what you want to do is you want to remove any friction associated with, with trading. And so um, we started charging transaction fees that were split evenly between the buyer and seller, which averaged at the time somewhere between uh, two to four percent hmm. in total. And now, uh, and, and also tell me, like early on, what were what kind of risks did you think about? Because I mean, with securities, it's always tough. And you know, we hear now, like with Madoff, it was all still wealthy individuals, and SECs getting blamed for it. You know, so there's always like when things go wrong. People are always kind of on a witch hunt in the security business. What were your thoughts getting into it, and how has that played out? We uh, realized or found out very early on, um, even before we launched, that we were going to have to be a, a, a regulated entity. So we became a registered broker dealer, which basically means that you're just you're covered by the by the SEC and FINRA, which you know I think is a blessing and a curse. I mean, the the curse is it's just a lot of work and, and takes time and costs money. But the blessing is that um, you know once you go through that process and once you are um, overseen by the regulators, um, you know it really does help 
differentiate differentiate the business and kind of separate you from you know fly by night operations. And, and also tell me like those first couple of years you know leading up to '07. What were you personally spending your time doing? Were you you know spending most of your time selling or figuring out the system or building the team? How, how did you get split up there? I, I think we all wore many different hats and and did lots of different. Uh, things you know, as the CEO, I was you know, primarily focused on you know being the face of the organization, meeting with potential partners, um, and you know I think we spent we spent a lot of time early on uh, trying to set up deals and relationships with the major banks here in New York in particular, uh, because we view them as just great sources of of sellers in particular and buyers as well. And you know I I, th- I think we realized you know probably 12 months into it. That it was a complete and total waste of time, um, and and the main issue really was that um, you know the folks at the banks they have a certain way of doing things, and there's lots of levels and lots of lots of of, 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 of conflicting objectives, and so while we had you know many many great meetings, and they all typically ended up in the banks wanting to invest in us or buy us, uh, we realized that it really wasn't resulting in any real revenue. So we we shifted our focus, uh, you know, again pretty early on to just. Going out directly to the buyers and sellers, you know, we were more than happy to work with the banks at the time. Uh, but we said, you know what, we can just do this ourselves. We'll just bang down doors, pick up the phone, go to conferences, and, and bring buyers and sellers to the marketplace. And why didn't any of these banks look at you and say, hey, we could be doing this. We already have the systems, the relationships, and uh, it sounds like a good business. I, I think at the time it was just too small to really um, matter. Uh, you know, restricted stock, which was our only asset class at the time, you know, while, you know, the DTC, which is a, you know, a big um, um, company that settles transactions, thought it was a trillion dollar market, you know, transactions, um, you know, based on our revenue, you know, one or two or five million dollars, you know, for a major bank is, is how much one trader makes, a, you know, in a day, you know, trading, you know, commodities or GE stock. So, so I think at the, at the time, they thought it would be a great tool to have. Um, but it wasn't enough um, of an opportunity for them to, to, to allocate resources to try to compete. So you were kind of in this little, uh, I guess, undiscovered niche. Yeah, right? and we loved it. I mean, and you know, every single time that we got pressed, and every ever, you know, all all of the successes we had, um, you know, we were always surprised that there weren't more folks trying to get involved into the market, whether it was the big banks or other startups. And and it really. You know, there were a couple situations that that came up over the past you know four years, but but really, um, you know, no real competition ever emerged. And so you're saying in 2007, up until now, you've just been fueled all by your angel raise and mostly by the cash flow, and you decided to take an investment. Yeah. Well, it, so so 2007 um, came around, and um, um, Brad Monks, who I mentioned, was the first partner. Um, was was actually uh, battling cancer throughout um, the 2005 2006, and Brad that Brad passed away in 2007, and so we went through some you know some some tough times as a business. Um, you know, Brad was a, was more than just a business partner, but a friend to everybody. And so you know, we were we were kind of taking a look at ourselves. You know, what do we want to be? Where do we want to go? And, um, you know, you know, out of that experience for all of us, it really kind of came to the realization that we want to create the next NASDAQ, the next eBay. We want to create the next multi-billion dollar company, um, the marketplace of the future. And we realized that um, we were not going to be able to do this on our own. 
Uh, I had obviously never started a company before and didn't have much experience creating a multi-billion dollar company. So when we got the phone call from um, a, a company called Firstmark here in New York, it was, it was, it was compelling. Um, you know, having the capital um, was great, um, but we were profitable, so we didn't really need the money. But having somebody, you know, on our side, on our board, who's done this, you know, dozens of times was, was very, very compelling to us. So first, just to back up, I'm sure it must be difficult to talk about, but, uh, you know, what was it like working for, for a couple of years with a partner who, you know, in addition to the challenges of a startup, having to battle cancer, that just sounds overwhelming. It, it puts everything in perspective. Uh, Brad was diagnosed with cancer uh, right around the time we got our angel funding. So, um, you know, for, for really kind of the first two years of existence, um, Brad was, uh, you know, going to chemotherapy and having surgeries and having treatment. And, you know, unfortunately, um, the, the cancer that Brad had, um, while it wasn't, wasn't um, curable, it was, it was treatable. So Brad was able to put in, you know, basically up until the end, you know, full days, work just as hard as everybody else. And, um, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today w w without Brad. But, y y you know, I, I would spend time with Brad at the hospital and going to treatment. And, you know, again, it, 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 it puts things in perspective. It makes, it makes you, you know, kind of, you know, thank for, you know, be thankful to the people around you and the contributions pe people make to the business. Um, and now we can kind of look back and, and, and realize that, you know, second market is, 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 is Brad's legacy. And now to jump back to raising money, were you – when you did it, were you worried about kind of going from being in this position where, I mean, you, you know, you'd raise a little bit of money, but I'm sure, you know, you're kind of totally in control. I imagine didn't really have uh, a formal board of directors to answer to or any large, you know, investors who were looking over your shoulder. Like, what were your thoughts with that? Well, well the first thing we did is we went, we went on, a, on a trip to Las Vegas. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so we, we – I think the, the, the control um, – not the control, but the kind of the, the process – the, the process that were put in place by the board, um, things like looking at metrics and setting goals and, you know, measurements, those are things that, you know, while I think we had been doing our best to put in place, it really was, um, um, you know, institutionalized, you know, once, once FirstMark came in. And so, so their investment uh, was uh, – we closed the summer of, of, of 2007, so August 2007. So we were, you know, mid-year and just started to think about, you know, planning for next year. And it was kind of a good time because it was the summer and we were able to kind of take a, take a look, take a step back and look at our business and, um, you know, figure out, you know, how do we, how do we measure success of, of the business and individuals and groups, things like that. So what were uh, – how do you find that with, like, goal setting, you know, before – both beforehand? Did you find it really drove you compared to just going out and making sales and then once you're kind of accountable as the CEO, do it change things? I, I think we were, we were lucky in that um, we, we've, we've always, you know, been able to, you know, exceed our goals and even our highest expectations for our business. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we were focusing on were, were things like expenses and marketing spend and hiring. Um, and obviously, we, you know, we're setting, setting goals for, for revenue and, and every month, every quarter, we continue to exceed them. So the board was certainly happy. But, uh, you know, we were able to, um, you know, kind of, you know, really kind of use that experience um, for planning purposes and create, you know, for the first time ever a budget for, for mm -hmm. 2008, uh, which was which was a great experience. But, um, you know, uh, in looking back, you know, versus 2009, um, you know, we 
and I feel like every year this is going to be the same, where you just learn a lot. And you know, you, without the data points, it's it's hard to create a budget, especially in a bit but in a business like ours, a marketplace where you can track trends, you can track signups, you can track things listed for sale. But um, you know, there's ebbs and flows in in, in most businesses, and in, in a transaction-based business in particular, there, there there are some pretty big ebbs and flows. Hmm. And so when you look to kind of other companies that you, you know, admire, want to model yours after, what companies are you looking at? When I was thinking about the various business ideas, you know, I, I was looking at businesses that would be, um, you know, either counter-cyclical or fully hedged in whatever economic environment. And, you know, what better than a casino or what better than a marketplace where as long as there's volumes, you know, it doesn't matter if people are buying or selling or things going up or down, um, you you uh, you make money, and so you know I spent a lot of time looking at the various exchanges and marketplaces. Obviously, eBay, um, you know, they, they had you know huge successes early on and continue to uh, you know evolve as a business. And um, but we also looked at 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 kind of the old line Wall Street firms, folks like Goldman Sachs and Lazard and other successful businesses that um, you know have have been able to make money in, in lots of different market environments. What do you say as this business grew up? To now, I think 125 employees. You said right, in several offices. Uh, what, what, what for you personally was hardest about scaling the business? You know, were you comfortable all the way along, or was there a certain point in the company where you felt really challenged? I, I think we we've um, for, you know, for, I guess for me personally, that you know, the, the the biggest challenge is realizing that unfortunately, you know, you're going to make hiring mistakes, and so you know, especially when you're when you're you know doubling your staff in the course of you know six or nine months, and we're aggressively hiring right now, and and you know, we we do our best to make sure that the people we're hiring are are a great fit and and understand you know our values and 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 are enthusiastic about our business but again it's 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 hard to um to you know to 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 hire folks and then you know 6 months later realize that you know for whatever reason you just made a bad decision so so that that's been tough um but but you know having said that you know it's a high class problem because when you're growing so fast and you're trying to scale up your business um you know I would much prefer to have that problem versus the other problem of having to cut you know, cut cut staff. You know, people who actually are contributing. And so, tell me about the growth. Uh, so, two thousand seven, you said you have five and a half million revenue. How'd the growth go in oh eight oh nine? So, when we took in the money from First Mark uh, in that summer, two thousand seven, how much did you raise again? We raised three point eight million uh, for twenty five percent of the company. So, so when we took in the money from First Mark, uh, we were um, we are we are at the point where we realized that um, our platform, which was the first generation system, was working. Uh, it was working for us internally. It was working for buyers and sellers. We realized that the model we had created for this first asset class, restricted stock, uh, could be applied to different different markets. So we started coming up with 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 a number of of different asset classes that we could potentially get into. And um, uh, in the early part of 2008, we uh, were watching one market or asset class that completely fell apart. And it was something called auction rate securities, which was a um, it was a it was a it was a cash instrument developed by the banks that clients put their money into instead of CDs or money market funds. And ultimately, it turned out to be you know, a bit of a flawed product because it was highly dependent 
um, on on the banks to support the the trading, the secondary market. So in in in, in February of 2008, the auction rate securities market exploded, and in two weeks uh, we were able to roll out a new marketplace on second market for auction rate securities, which to this day continues to be um, our largest market um, on on the marketplace. Um, and so so that was the first asset class that we added, or the, or the second one, you know, for our business. And um, it propelled the growth of the company um, through 2008, where we ended up the year um, doing about um, a little more than $20 million in revenue. And so, so that brought you to $20 million in revenue in 2008, you said? Right. And then so what was it like shifting from one, doing that first shift from one thing to another? Was it just kind of seamless, or was there – did you have to kind of turn the company on its head? Uh, that's a big move. Well, the, the funny thing about it is that at the time in February 2008, nobody here really knew anything about auction rate securities. Um, and I, I would say there's probably even a small group on Wall Street who really knew what they were, understood what they were. And we were able to um, um, you know, essentially have all of the different groups in our company, from, from technology to legal to operations to sales, come together. Like I said, in this very short period of time, this two-week period of time, and become experts in auction rate securities, and and it was really funny because um, one of the industry organizations put together a conference call uh, for the for Wall Street uh, about a week, week and a half um, after the whole thing blew up, and um, invited us to you know present as a possible solution, and it was us and you know five or six you know other you know, probably pretty well-known firms out there. And um, I basically led the call. I was answering all the questions. I was talking about the issues. I was talking about the solutions. And you know, we all you know were, were you know you know kind of chuckling that you know we were able to you know as a team to come together and really kind of become true experts in this asset class. And to this day, you know, we really are um, um, you know the experts, and we're speaking at conferences and hosting webinars and you know providing um, you know all of the kind of the, the, the key information to the industry. How do you go about learning a new marketplace like this, you know, where the documents aren't all on, you know, easily Googleable necessarily? I assume they're not easily Googleable. Yeah, they're, they're not, and I think it's really just about being, being resourceful, um, about, um, you know, certainly using kind of tools like Google, but also, uh, you know, knowing, knowing lots of law, lawyers and accountants and folks at the banks where, you know, in the case of auction rates, we were able to, you know, just utilize um, a bunch of a bunch of relationships that we had out there um, to figure it out, to figure it out kind of, you know, really quickly. Now, ultimately, you know, as we were growing that market, we, we hired folks who actually did know something about it. But at that point, um, I think we had a very successful marketplace. And so it was really just to, to kind of help scale that business. Yeah. So tell me, as it's grown now with all these different asset classes, how, how many people actually log into your system and, the, you know, make their trades, you know, right through your system versus get a phone call from you guys or have kind of a more, you know, a more personal relationship? What we learned uh, early on was that one of the keys to creating um, trading or liquidity in these liquid assets was to create something more than just a trading platform. And so um, in the next generation system, you know, which we which we launched in the early part of 2009, we added things like uh, data and analytics and free research and just lots of great content. And so, you know, what we've done is we've created, you know, this this really great network of buyers and sellers, but also um, a, a huge resource for buyers and sellers in terms of information. And so um, that that has been really kind of one of the most successful aspects of our business 
which is kind of creating an information gateway in a data business um, in addition to just the trading business. So today, you know, we certainly describe our marketplace, our company, as a hybrid market where you have the, 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 the platform, which you can log in and place bids and listings for sale and do research, but it's supported by uh, about 50 market specialists, we call them. So of the 125, you know, a large percentage of our employees are, are spending their days on the phone, answering questions, calling out, going to conferences, meeting people um, to help you know bring in new buyers and sellers to each one of these into the markets we created. I know a lot of market and platform-based companies have a big issue of fraud. You know, like eBay and PayPal both famously had tremendous problems. Did you ever have any uh, issues with that? We never had any issues with that in terms of fraud. Uh, I think mainly because as a regulated business, we have to go above and beyond uh, what, what folks in eBay and PayPal you know, were, were, you know, did when they were starting. Um, and so to get onto second market as a buyer, you have to qualify as, as either an institution or a sophisticated investor. Um, and, and behind the scenes, we're doing lots, lots of background checks and making sure you know we don't have you know people trying to you know, launder money or terrorists on our system. And that's that's you know we have to under 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 rules and regulations. Um, but we also um, built into our system just ways to to settle these transactions where you're never going to you know send your money to somebody and they're going to disappear to the Cayman Islands. And so you know again, it adds additional steps to the process. But um, you know, I think we were able to put in put in place um, uh, um, settlement processes that that prevent things like fraud from happening. And so, tell me now, what's been going on at the company in the last couple of years? So you're saying, oh wait, you had 20 million in revenue, and you know what's happening this year? What are the new initiatives at the company? Well, we have a lot, we have a lot going on, which is very exciting. Uh, so after the auction rates in early 2008, we then added another asset class, which was bankruptcy claims, which is you know, one of the early ones it's that I was dear to your heart. Exactly, exactly. And obviously in this, you know, economic environment in a recession, it's good to have a market like that. And af after Lehman Brothers filed, there's something like a trillion dollars of bankruptcy claims outstanding right now. And so that that's a, you know, great market for us that, that continues to grow very quickly. Um, and then we, let, we launched another market in the early part of 2009, and that's for trading limited partnership interests and in hedge funds and private equity and venture funds, which is basically the folks who invest in these funds, um, you know, you know, considered like the stock in these funds, they typically have not had the ability to, to sell. Uh, they, you know, you invest for five or ten years, um, but but after the last liquidity crisis, a lot of folks wanted to rebalance the portfolios or, or, or sell their, their interests. So we launched that market in January uh, of 2009. Um, a few months later, we launched markets for the toxic assets, or I guess they're called legacy assets now. Um, we call them chocolate-covered assets here internally, make them really appetizing for people wanting to buy. And um, you know that, that, that would be things like mortgage-backed securities and CDOs and whole loans. Um, and and you know, the, the genesis for that really was getting calls from sellers who wanted to get out of these, but we also engaged in a dialogue with the government, with various folks in the government, about ways that the second market model um, could be used to help unclog the financial system. And you know, to this day, you know, we're working with or an active dialogue with with uh, various folks in the government um, about you know using the second market platform um, in various capacities. Um, and then after that, uh, we we launched uh, the marketplace for private company stock, um, which which has a, a bit of a long history, which we can talk about. And then most recently, we uh, we launched a market for the California IOUs. 
which is uh, in, in early July, the government basically ran out of money and had to issue IOUs to, um, um, uh, at this point, I think over 150,000 um, uh, California citizens and, and companies um, um, until they had enough money to, to pay them back. And that was, that was a situation where um, there was a, an acute need for people needing money. Um, there was a, certainly a, dema a demand on the buy side. And this time around, in six days, we created a living, breathing, functioning market on second market where we had 250 buyers signed up, ready to go, um, you know, for, for these California IOUs. Now, fortunately, the budget as of now is resolved, and fortunately it looks like the IOUs are, will be repaid as expected on October 2nd, but um, things are fairly fluid, it seems, and unfortunately, there's other states and other municipalities that may have to issue IOUs as well. And so we're ready to go. We're ready to create markets, you know, wherever we need to. And so tell me now, tell me more about when you launch in these new uh, these new markets right now. Do you incur any hard costs, or is there a certain number of uh, new people you need to bring on with every market you go into? We we staff each market um, on the on the kind of the front end um, from f anywhere from four to eight individuals depending on the market size and and the volumes. Um, the nice thing about second market and the platform we've built, um, you know, we we use um, uh, GWT, which is Google Web Toolkits, uh, which is an open source technology um, system that that enables us to you know to really kind of plug in new markets, new tools into our platform, um, you know, fairly easily. Now, my tech guys hate when I say it, but, um, you know, we, we can, you know, open up new markets, you know, create new products very, very quickly with the infrastructure that we built. So when we add new markets, it's really just creating, you know, we call them portlets, but basically kind of a new environment in our existing infrastructure. Um, and on top of that, you know, we may incur some legal fees, outside legal fees, um, in, in, uh, in order to create standardized documents. We may, um, you know, spend a little money on marketing, but um, generally speaking, um, it, it's not very expensive for us to create new markets now. And so, when tell me more about the private uh, private stock market. I think that's something that would be very relevant to entrepreneurs, where you know you start a company, it's still private for whatever reasons, can't go public, and you have stock in it. What do you do with it? So, so this is the one that this is the market that we're really most excited about right now uh, for a whole lot of reasons. And so I'll, I'll give you the real kind of brief history of what happened. <clears throat> so in in uh, probably early two thousand eight. We started getting phone calls from shareholders and various private companies. Um, you know, a lot of kind of well-known companies. Um, you know, usually venture-backed companies. But we got a lot of phone calls from one company in particular, or one group of shareholders, and that was Facebook. And you know, I think the reason why was that there was just a lot of value that had been created. You know, a lot of people, you know, had a lot of you know paper wealth. Um, some folks had left the company, had moved on to start other businesses and otherwise. And you know, while we hadn't created a market for private company stock or Facebook, we were um, you know surprised to see um, the amount of information out there about the company and quite frankly, the number of buyers. And so we had, you know, in our platform at the time, maybe we had 1,200, 1,300 buyers in the system um, for private company stock. <clears throat> we were able to um, get transactions done. And so we were, you know, using the old-fashioned kind of telephone, email, IM, a market-making model, but, but you know, we're able to, to, you know, become, we believe at the time and even to, the, to, to this day, kind of, the, kind of the ad hoc market for Facebook stock. But we learned a lot while we were doing that. 
Um, and that was that Facebook is very, very unique. Facebook, um, like I said, you know, obviously very valuable company, growing very fast, lots of interest, and also a lot of information out there about it. So you, you can actually, as a buyer, you can get comfortable placing a bid on the stock. But you know, generally speaking, most private companies are not like that. So what we realized was that you know, there's an important constituent in these transactions in private company stock, unlike our other markets, and that's the company themselves. So we, what we decided to do was to spend um, about a year just meeting with private companies, meeting with venture funds, meeting with entrepreneurs to find out you know, what are the issues here. If you were going to create a marketplace for private company stock, you know, how, would it, how would it work? What would it look like? And, and the funny thing is we got 50 different perspectives. And so what we ended up creating and launching a few months ago was uh, we called a private company program where the company themselves uh, essentially are our partner where they create their own markets in a controlled environment on second market in our platform where they decide how does the market work, meaning who's in it, who gets to buy or sell. Uh, they get to decide what information is shared with buyers and sellers. Some are going to issue a lot of information, some nothing. They get to decide when's the market open. This isn't NASDAQ. It doesn't have to be open from 930 to 4 every day. In fact, most companies that have signed up are looking at opening it for one week a year or you know one day a quarter. <clears throat> and the companies, um, lastly, also get to, get to decide um, you know, how does the transaction process work in terms of you know, figuring out what the price is. Is it an auction? Is it like a market where you have bids and offers? Or do you do what Facebook did in their transaction where, where they found a, an investor, DST, agreed on a price, and then basically just opened up that, 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 that purchase um, to their shareholders? So there's lots of different ways to, to do it, and so we've built a you know very flexible system uh, for for companies to use um, you know for for purposes of secondary liquidity. And we learned one more thing along the way, and that is that in addition to secondary liquidity, meaning people looking to sell their stock, um, a lot of companies, a lot of private companies, are looking to raise money. So over the past few months, as these companies were signing up to our program, they said, well, wait a second. So you have, you have 1,000 buyers uh, specifically of private company stock or 1,200 buyers. Um, um, if they're buyers uh, you know, for, on a secondary basis, wouldn't they be interested in investing in companies as well? And the answer is, is yes. And so what we've also um, decided to do is to open up second markets to venture-backed private companies who want to do another round. Um, whether it's you know other institutions or bringing in sophisticated investors, because um, the idea is, is that these companies ultimately will probably want to go public, and if they do, you want to have the shares in in the right hands. You want to have it in folks who are going to be around for the long term, and you're able to increase the, the the cost basis of these shareholders to the point where when the company does go public, they don't have any need or desire to to go sell the shares immediately on the open. And you worry that having the companies involved could undermine the market. So, like in other words, if you know Facebook signs up for this and says we're going to trade once a year, and there are going to be five buyers, and then some competitor opens up and says, "Hey, we'll trade your stock without Facebook's involvement year-round, and we'll open it up to a thousand buyers," the second market would then be less appealing. Well, well the, the, I think the biggest um, attraction of, of of you know the second market model is that as as the, as partners with the company, the company will provide information to potential investors, and again, in a, in a secure environment. So, you know, if that scenario was to happen where someone else tries to create some type of marketplace 
away from the company, well, the buyers won't have access to the information in that system. And on top of that, the sellers, they're going to know that the best time to sell their shares and the best price is going to come in this once a week, you know, process. Uh, and on top of that, if it's employees or former employees, the companies as well could put in restrictions as to who can sell and when they can sell. Okay, great. And uh, I also just wanted to pull up now, I'd asked on Twitter if anyone has any uh, questions for you. So I hope you don't mind if I uh, check and read any if we have anything Please. interesting. Let me see. One of the questions we got was, uh, do you post these quotes now? So, you know, I, I mean, Facebook's a great example where everyone's speculating about their value and it's gone drastically up and down as, uh, as you know, they've done this transaction like with Microsoft where it's valued high and then it's valued low. So, you know, you have that data. Have you thought about opening that up? I think we would love to, as a marketplace, make everything open to everybody. Um, but there's a couple issues with that. Number one is we're not allowed to um, as a regulated marketplace. Um, but two is on the private company market, uh, the issue is the companies themselves don't necessarily want that information out there. And since, you know, as I mentioned, the companies are such an important part of this process, um, you know, we let the company decide. So some, certain companies are going to put prices up on their website. They're going to allow that information to be made public. But other companies, they may decide that, um, you know, they just want to keep that uh, information kind of closed. Now, having said that, since companies control their own, you know, market environment, anybody who is in that market, you know, gets to see, you know, if there's an auction happening or there's bids and offers, they get to see it. But um, but outside, you know, again, the, the, the company-controlled environment, um, it's up to the company to decide. And now it, it kind of also raises a larger question about everything you're doing where, you know, prior, one of the values of having your company not or, you know, whatever kind of asset class not be public is that, you don't have to worry about, you know, short-term changes in price and maybe if you're, you know, if you're a venture firm with your limited partners or restricted stock, you know that your partners are going to be the same or that if the stock's restricted that someone's interests are aligned with the companies for longer. So, you know, is there any kind of backlash with this that, hey, if we can make all these things that we wanted to lock people up for longer more liquid and more transparent, that, you know, some of the benefits of not being public go away? And I think you know what you're what you're pointing out is exactly what we learned during our process, and that is that um, by putting the control back in the hands of the company as to who who can buy their stock and who can sell, you're able to kind of keep that control because because the opposite, the alternative is you know what what has what started to happen and what would happen more is anybody who wants to sell, they call their brokers, they call their lawyers, they call uh, their accountants, they put things up on a bulletin board. Um, and anybody can buy or sell, and it just becomes, you know, a bit of a mess. Uh, because I think at the end of the day, um, the, you know, the, the, the facts are showing now that private companies are going to stay private longer. You know, the average time between raising money and going public is 10 years, 10 years. So if you think about that, I mean, it used to be like five years. So a any, anybody who joins a company um, to work as an employee or anybody who invests in a company, they typically don't have a 10-year time horizon. Uh, and even venture funds, venture funds themselves, they, 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 you know, they're not usually involved in companies that long. So if you believe that companies are going to stay private longer, um, that would mean that you're going to have more shareholders, and that means you're going to have more shareholders who want to sell stock. So you can either just let things happen, um, however people would go to try to sell their stock or buy the stock, or 
as we figured out, you can you can control and organize that process. Now, I know there's also a restriction with private companies. I think when it's they have more than 500 shareholders, they're regulated as though they were a public company. Yeah, the rules um, dictate that once you have 500 shareholders, the company has to start making filings with the SEC. And there there are not too many private companies out there that are approaching that threshold. But what's really interesting is that by organizing the market and controlling it, it's actually a good way to lower your shareholders. Because what you can do is you can force people who want to sell to sell all their stock. And if you have a limited number of buyers, it actually will consolidate your your ownership. And on top of that, there are also um, a number of efforts underway um, in D.C. that we're aware of to either um, increase the number of shareholders or to change how it's calculated to to provide for um, private companies staying private longer and having more shareholders. And that's a, that's another thing I'd love to get your opinion on is, you know, what do you think the direction should be with regulation of all these private assets since that's um, – you know, between hedge funds and just private companies in general and private equity firms, do you think that the SEC should be regulating them more and making more rules or that they should go the opposite direction? We're firm believers um, in transparency, obviously, you know, given our market and how, how we operate things. Um, and and so we're, we're, we would, you know, be supportive of, of any regulations or any rules that, you know, you know provide for um, 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 you know, funds or different investments um, to have more transparency, either in terms of pricing or just the underlying um, assets themselves, um, things like CDOs and mortgage-backed securities. You just can't get information about them. And so, you know, we're, we're certainly pushing in D.C. Um, more transparency. But having said that, we also are seeing things like venture funds being grouped together with hedge funds in terms of, you know, regulations as some type of systemic risk, which is obviously you know, wrong and kind of taking things too far. So, you know, we're, we're, we're hopeful that, um, you know, the, the powers that be will make the right decisions and, and regulate the right funds the right way. And we spend a lot of time down in D.C. Uh, meeting with folks on the Hill and folks at the agencies, just kind of sharing our views about, um, you know, kind of where we think the risks and the opportunities are. And one last question about the marketplace itself. Have you ever had any of the the companies that are being traded or, uh, you know, firms that are being traded um, react negatively to you? Like if there's some venture firm and their LPs are now trading them 50 cents on the dollar through your uh, system and now it's getting out to thousands of people that they're in, in trouble, you know. So have you ever had a, a cease and desist or a negative reaction? Never, never. And the reason why is before um, LP interests can trade on second market, uh, we reach out to the to the general partners to make sure that they're okay with it. Ultimately, they actually have approval rights um, on the private company side of things. Since uh, you know our approach has been working closely with the companies, we always reach out to them first. And if companies you know were to say you know we don't want this happening, you know please don't do this, you know we would certainly um, listen to them. Um, you know, but it's it, it hasn't happened. And you know having having been doing this for almost five years now and done, you know, one and a half billion dollars in transactions, I think everybody realizes that, you know, what we're doing is this is good. I mean, we're creating more liquidity, helps people sell better prices, opens up opportunities to buyers. And, um, you know, especially on the private company front, things are things are broken. Things that the capital markets are not open to companies of a certain size. Um, venture funds are looking to get liquidity and looking for solutions, and and what our efforts have been, you know, universally embraced um, by by the by the venture capital community and the capital markets. 
And, and so tell me to support all this. You said that you built your first kind of real tech system in 06 and then a second one in 09. How much money was invested and time into building each of them? The the first platform uh, was we spent um, I, I believe about twelve to fourteen months building it and we spent a little more than a million dollars on it uh, and the second system which which we we released in early two thousand nine uh, were you know two and a half three million dollars into it and we're on a on about a three week release cycle right now and so we have a we have a, a an engineer development team uh, probably about, of about forty forty five people right now. So we're investing very heavily, um, adding new functionality, adding new markets, um, adding new tools into the system, and um, continue or plan to continue investing very heavily in the platform. And what what are the main functions? Like, what, what's it doing beyond just what the Excel spreadsheet did? <laughs> well, it, it's uh, it, there's there's a number of really kind of cool things we built into the system, and and you know, our approach is to look outside of the capital markets. For, for functionality that works um, in, in other sectors. So one example is we built a matching algorithm in our system where uh, when anything gets put up for sale, whether it's a block of Facebook or an auction rate security or an LP interest, our system ranks all, we have about 3,600 total buyers now, it ranks all of them as to the, who the most logical buyers are based on, there's like 100 variables what their profile is, what they've bid on in the past, what they're you looking sound like at. like the eHarmony guy right it's, now. Yeah, the eHarmonyMatch.com e for liquid mm -hmm. assets. And what, what's, what's great about that is that, one, it helps us internally you know, manage um, you know, all of these listings that are for sale and making sure that you know, they're, they're being shown to the right individuals or institutions. But what we're going to soon be doing is we're going to give buyers their score for every single listing. So when you log in, it's scored out of 100. So you're going to be able to look at just the things that our system is saying you should be interested in buying. And, you know, you can sort and search by, you know, it's 100 is the closest match. So anything above a 90. So that's one thing that we built to the system. Um, another thing we built is, is auctions, different types of auction formats. Um, we have, you know, the standard English auctions and the sealed bid auctions. And we even invented our own auction type for liquid assets. Um, so there's that functionality. And the other thing we built into the system is something called the Second Market Ecosystem, which is a network of, um, of third-party service providers, folks like research firms and valuation firms and advisors who are using Second Market to basically you know, either promote their services or to sell, sell, sell product. Um, so research firms can, can sell uh, research reports and valuation firms can sell valuation reports. So what we're doing is we're creating not just a network of buyers and sellers, but a network of, of, of third-party um, providers who can basically make money off of this big network we've created. Because, you know, we, we looked at successful models. You know, like uh, Look at eBay. eBay, um, very early on, um, had companies that were getting created just to sell products to the eBay buyers and sellers. Companies, you know, selling bubble wrap or cardboard boxes. So, you know, we're, we're, you know, we have about 70 partners signed up right now, and we're already hearing from folks who want to create new businesses, you know, around the second market platform, um, um, you know, to, to, to sell those services. And so how, how many dollars worth of securities have been traded so far? So we've done uh, just north of $1.5 billion. Um, of that, uh, over a billion has been in just the 12, past 12 months. Uh, we currently have about $16 billion of different assets listed for sale um, on the platform. 
versus uh, $2 billion a year ago. And so we're seeing some real, um, you know, tremendous growth in terms of signups and new listings for sale and, and revenue as well. Um, and this is what you see with su successful marketplaces. They hit that inflection point where it becomes viral and, you, you know, you see some real kind of, you know, tremendous growth. And we're, we're in the middle of that phase right now. What's your thought on how big this can be? It's kind of the sky's the limit because if you think about all the illiquid assets out there in the world, uh, it goes well beyond just financial assets. And financial assets alone, uh, in the markets that we're in, uh, there's about $6 trillion uh, of just the markets that we're in. Uh, and, you know, we have 50 different asset classes that we're watching right now of all different kind of shapes and sizes. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna grow this um, in terms of buyers and sellers. We're going to grow this in terms of different markets. And we're going to grow this in terms of, of, of functionality um, uh, through our platform. So what, what's your day like now? What do you, you know, what do you spend your time on? Is it, you know, making sure the operations are good, growth? Just doing interviews like this, how's it split up? <laughs> well, there's there's definitely been a lot of a lot of press over the past year, which is which is which is great. But um, you know, I, I have I have uh, eight uh, very strong, very capable lieutenants, my senior officer staff, and so I spend time <clears throat> with with each one of them uh, each week. Um, uh, we spend a lot of time on on the basic blocking and tackling, but also big picture strategy issues. Uh, I, I am spending a lot of time in Washington D.C. I go down probably every week or two. Um, and also spending a lot of time out in uh, San Francisco in the Bay Area, uh, meeting with 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 private companies and venture funds, um, you know, to, um, you know to, to to work with them on on the private company program. And then, how about your with your own company now? Are people starting to uh, to trade any stock on Second Market? Or? We, we are creating um, uh, our own market uh, on Second Market. We're going to be launching that uh, early next year. Uh, I, I'm not aware of anybody who wants to sell. I certainly know of people who want to buy, and uh, we're excited to turn that on because uh, you know we um, we you know we've been around for about five years, and so we're at the point where private companies typically do have shareholders who do want to get liquidity. So we're going to provide for them um, a a robust, viable secondary market to sell into. Because we as a company have we have no plans to go public. I I I, I would love to keep this company private. Um, I, I I you know I think one of the biggest risks of going public is you may end up being one of these zombie public companies that they don't trade and they have a huge bid offer spread and you have all the negatives of being public but none of the positives. You don't have the valuation premium. So you know until until any company is of the size that that the public markets embrace. You know, I just assume you know, you know, they and we stay stay private. And how do you want to stay involved? Do you, you know, want to be CEO for the foreseeable future, or are you thinking that they're going to have you know, to they're going to have to carry me out of here? Uh, <laughs> that that's my plan. Yes, uh, you're with it with it for the long haul. You sure am. You won't be trading your stock anytime soon. No, uh, no, second I'm, market. No, if anything, I'm a buyer. <laughs> okay, great. So, so as we sign off, I guess you know, what's your do you have any kind of parting thoughts to people listening out there? I guess, you know, we're in a time of turmoil again here on Wall Street and uh, kind of, you know, from your own journey uh, in building a company. I think it sounds like these that, that opportunities, um, the best opportunities, I, I think, uh, kind of come out of the, you know, the disruptions and dislocations and the capital markets and things like that. And, you know, there's there's long, long list of companies that were formed dur during kind of previous, you know, recessions and otherwise. And, and you know, even in a kind of a healthy boom um, economy, 
I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the number one advocate of, of, of starting a business, being an entrepreneur. I mean, it's a, it's a blast. It is so much fun to have an idea and, and to kind of see it come to life. It's a blast, you know, getting, getting to know um, your kind of coworkers. You're working 24-7 on an idea. Um, and, um, um, you know, I think that, that, you know, we, you know, we're doing our best at Second Market to, to open up opportunities to startups and entrepreneurs, you know, whether it's through our private company, marketplace, or our ecosystem, and are going to do our best to, um, you know, again, be supportive of, of, of those types of efforts. And, um, you know, we're, 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 we want to help any way we can, and, you know, would encourage anybody who's, who's listening to reach out to us if there's anything that, uh, that we can do to, to help them with their, fulfill their dreams. Great. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you. That's all for my show today. I love these stories about bootstrapping the beginning, but still building a company that can scale. If you have reactions to this or want to engage with Second Market, be sure to go to VentureVoice.com, leave a comment. Our guests usually come back and check and will respond there. Or feel free to get in touch with us through our contact form on the site. I'd also like to thank my associate producer, Eddie Lebaton, for helping me put this show together. Until next time, I'm Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.